It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by the policy and litigation team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series focuses on the intersection of business, policy, and law. I'm Tish Walker, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering healthcare patent litigation. And I'm Dwayne Wright, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering government healthcare policy. Our topic for today is the Inflation Reduction Act, a part two of sorts following a conversation we had in May with Ropes and Gray partner Margot Hall, where we discussed the impact of the law on R&D and regulatory strategy, among other topics. Um, in the lead up to September 1st, the date by which we will see the first list of drugs to be negotiated under this new law, there's been a lot of focus on how the IRA will impact some of the high expenditure branded drugs and biologics, but less attention on how this new law could impact generic and biosimilar manufacturers, which we plan to tease out today. But before we dive into the details, I want to set the stage with a quick high-level overview of the relevant parts of the law that we'll discuss today. Um, it sets in place Medicare price cuts of at least 25% for high expenditure drugs and biologics for which there is no marketed generic or biosimilar. It also shifts the Part D program's financial responsibility for drug coverage from Medicare and beneficiaries to drug manufacturers and health plans. And so to discuss these important issues, we have Craig Burton, Executive Director of the Biosimilars Council and Senior Vice President at the Association for Accessible Medicines, which represents generic and biosimilar manufacturers. Craig has a long history in healthcare policy circles with uh, private sector experience that includes strategy health policy solutions, Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, and public sector experience as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislation at HHS and Policy Advisor for then Senate Majority Leader Bill Frist. So with all that, Craig, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Thank you guys for having me. So Craig, for those who aren't in the Washington DC bubble, uh, can you give us some background on the Association for Accessible Medicines? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, 
so so AM is a trade association uh, representing manufacturers of generic and biosimilar medicines. Uh, our work really is focused on expanding patient access to safe, quality, and effective generics and biosimilars. Uh, we do that by promoting a positive regulatory reimbursement and policy environment. In addition, the Biosimilars Council, which is a part of AAM, uh, is focused specifically on, on biosimilars uh, advancing policy reimbursement um, solutions to encourage biosimilar adoption, um, as well as encouraging uh, education and collaboration um, around the safety and effectiveness of biosimilar medicine. And so when we think about the, the role of generics and biosimilars in the marketplace, what can we say about the cost savings for individuals, employers, and other players? Yeah, the the cost savings are are really significant. A couple uh, stats that I'll throw out um, uh, for you. If you if you look at our website, which is accessiblemeds.org, um, you'll see that we publish an annual savings report uh, looking at the impact of generic and biosimilars. Uh, so we're actually working on that right now um, uh, on the most recent uh, report that we hope to publish later this summer. Um, but if we look at 2021, for instance, using last year's report, in 2021, the use of generics and biosimilars saved uh, $373 billion um, compared to what would, would have been spent uh, if generics and biosimilars were not on the market. Over the last 10 years, the use of generics and biosimilars has uh, resulted in the savings of more than $2.6 trillion. So, so savings from generics and biosimilars is critical to uh, the, the sustainability of healthcare and, and the affordability of healthcare in the U.S. Um, to put it another way, uh, if, we, if we look at total uh, spending on prescription drugs, um, generics and biosimilars accounted for 91%, so more than nine out of every 10 prescriptions were filled with a generic or a biosimilar. But they were, they were responsible for uh, only 18% of all spending on prescription drugs in the U.S. So um, high value to, to everyone, whether it's patients, uh, employers, taxpayers, uh, and payers alike. And who are the, the players that help derive some of those savings and access to generics and biosimilars? What are the roles of physicians and PBMs and retail pharmacies in, in this healthcare supply chain as it relates to these products? Yes, I would say that everyone really has a role in, in creating those savings. And, and for years, um, generics have driven those savings um, as a result of a, a system-wide alignment in terms of coverage and reimbursement that encourages their use. Um, put simply, historically, everyone uh, uh, wins when, when a patient uses a generic um, because they've been more valuable to pharmacies, to providers, and to health plans and PBMs. Um, and when you when you factor this along with state policies that require dispensing of generics when available, um, that's that's where you really get the the magic of of creating patient access and savings. Um, what I would say is this incentive 
is is weakening and i think this is a result of changes in the marketplace as well as um changes in the policy and and um, coverage environment uh, that unintentionally um can can encourage the use of a higher cost medicine um of a of a higher cost brand drug and so thinking about that uh do you think that's playing a part in, in what we're seeing right now in the generic drug market? We heard recently that Teva Pharmaceuticals is scaling back its generic business. There was a notable bankruptcy filing impacting a drug on the FDA's drug shortage list. Does this signal challenges for the industry as a whole, or is this a function of oversupply in some cases, or just broader dynamics playing out right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think what you're seeing now is um, the result of a of years of short-sighted policy and market changes that have individually perhaps not changed the um, equation for generic uh, competition but collectively have made generic competition both much more challenging and much less uh, rewarding. So to give you, give you a couple examples, um, and, and maybe just to, to, you know, as a reminder, most generic companies, a typical generic company uh, uh, may be actively marketing hundreds of different products so with with a generic what's what's always important is what that portfolio looks like and they and they're constantly assessing their portfolio and and managing the balance between newer higher value uh generics uh and and older commoditized um you know lower lower uh lower priced uh, generics and and the balance there is critical and what we've seen is um, several years of slower coverage slower than historic uh, norms uh, coverage of new generics so what I mean by that is for instance in the Medicare drug program uh, it takes three years or more for new generics to be covered on as many as half of all Part D plan uh, formulaers. That's a huge shift. Um, uh, plans are just taking longer to cover new generics, um, and and those are those are where uh, a lot of companies um, you know, remain sustainable. On on the back end of that portfolio, as you think of the older generics, you know, these products are facing years of price deflation. The, the generic marketplace has always been deflationary, and that's part of what has driven the value. Um, but what we've seen over the past six plus years is a uh, sustained period of um, greater than historical norms uh, price deflation, uh, far below any level of sustainable production. So the result is that you know, whereas for years, manufacturers may have been able to remain in older, low or negative margin markets because of the value of new generic launches, you know, those, with, with slower adoption of new generics, 
that's putting more pressure on the entire enterprise. And so I, I do think you know, we, are, we are very concerned that um, there is a sustainability, sustainability challenge. Um, you know, we think the shortages that we're seeing, we think some of the announcements that you see from different companies are uh, indicators of that. Um, as manufacturers are forced to revisit and rationalize their portfolios. Adding on top of that, we now have the IRA in place, right, which is bringing in a whole new set of unknowns and questions and perhaps incentives or disincentives. So, so turning to the IRA specifically, what do you think are the key changes for generic and biosimilar manufacturers under this new law? Yeah, so I would highlight um, a couple pieces in particular. Um, the, the, the two headliners, obviously, are the uh, negotiation provisions, um, which have the potential to be um, highly impactful to generic and biosimilars, uh, as well as the Part D redesign uh, provisions that were included as part of the legislation. Uh, I would also note, you know, there were, were other provisions affecting generics and biosimilars. Um, the legislation created a temporary period of higher reimbursement for providers who use biosimilars, the ASP plus eight provision. Um, uh, uh, and, and I would say the inflation uh, penalty uh, provisions included in IRA even though they're 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 much narrower narrower when it comes to generics, certainly certainly have the potential to impact generics, in particular depending on how CMS uh, uh, implements those provisions. So drug pricing reform has been a long-standing goal of Democrats, with a variety of proposals introduced over the years to lower drug prices and. Now we have the IRA, which has actually been implemented and passed. Um, do you think the IRA was written with the generic industry in mind, or do you find that it's too focused on branded drug prices? Yeah, thanks for the question. What I think I would say that the legislation was very clearly focused on brand drugs. I think they attempted to uh, take into account the needs of generics and biosimilars, but it's our view that they could have done more. So. For instance, uh, tailoring how they did the negotiation provisions, um, uh, teasing out the inflation penalty provisions to more extensively account for the unique differences in those markets, I think would have been very worthwhile. So let's dig into that aspect of the law. Uh, we do know that first-to-market generics can enter at a price point that's roughly a third of the, the brand drug. We also know that the negotiation process will lead to cuts for high expenditure drugs of at least 25% with no floor. Some drugs could see price cuts of more than 60%. So in what ways do the negotiation provisions of the IRA alter some of the incentives for generic and biosimilar manufacturers? Yeah, good question. I th I think the key word, you know, as you were talking through how those price cuts, um, what those price cuts could be, the key word is could. <laughs> and yeah. and you know, if if I were to ask ask to summarize the impact of this on generics and biosimilars, in a word, I'd say uncertainty. 
there, this legislation creates a massive dose of uncertainty for future generic and biosimilar competition. What I mean by that, the legislation, again, they attempted to tailor this and take into account generics and biosimilars and, and, and not, not harm generic and biosimilar competition. So in, as in, in order to achieve that, they wrote the legislation so that uh, a product is removed from negotiation or exempted from negotiation if a generic or a biosimilar is approved and marketed. But it's less than clear, and in some cases it's going to be quite challenging to ensure that a generic or a biosimilar is actually on the market before negotiation kicks in. The, the timelines that they establish for, um, for exposing a brand drug to negotiation may or may not line up with realistic timelines for getting a generic or a biosimilar uh, licensed or approved um, and on the market. And, and, and so what this means is that a generic or a biosimilar manufacturer is going to have to factor that into their decision making. And keep in mind, a generic or a biosimilar manufacturer is making a decision on whether to invest in a, in a competitive product years before negotiation kicks in. Um, that, that decision on an investment is happening in the first one to three years after a brand drug launches. And, and, you know, for some, let's say it's a simple small molecule, maybe that's a you know, relatively low cost, somewhere between five and $25 million for a development program. But that's not the case for all generics and certainly not for, for biosimilars. Um, uh, the, the development costs for uh, specialty complex generics uh, can be quite, quite expensive. I think uh, the generic Advair was reported to have cost roughly $800 million uh, to develop. Um, we consistently hear from biosimilar manufacturers that the cost of developing a biosimilar ranges between $100 and $300 million. So now all of a sudden, generic and biosimilar manufacturers are having to make a decision on an expensive investment years before they know, will the brand be negotiated? Or will they be able to get to market before that negotiation kicks in? And if they don't get to market, what will the negotiated price be? What will the addressable market be? Because the legislation um, provides guidelines, but it sets a ceiling price. It doesn't set a floor. And so how will CMS set that price? All of these are unknowns that are going to really affect the incentives and the decision-making for um, future generics and biosimilars. So it, it's, I feel like you've laid out well some of the potential disincentives here, and it's largely because of the unknowns, the uncertainty uh, around how this is going to play out, not for the not just for those companies that are directly impacted through negotiation, but also some of the other players that would like to jump into the market, like the generic manufacturers and biosimilar manufacturers. 
So with that in mind, is there a realistic scenario where a manufacturer subject to a maximum fair price under the law ceases to produce that drug at some point, but there isn't a generic alternative because of some of these disincentives we've we've talked about? Is that a possibility or is that far-fetched? No, I think it's a real possibility. Um, uh, I don't think that we can expect a manufacturer of a brand drug that is negotiated um, and receives an MFP. Um, I don't think it's reasonable or realistic to expect that manufacturer to stick around producing that drug in perpetuity, uh, particularly as the MFP goes down uh, over time. Um, and, and, and I think it is our concern that you're going to see fewer and slower generic uh, uh, entrants. Now, you know, what that looks like is going to depend on, on a number of factors, right? It's going to depend on the cost of IP litigation, the cost of the development program. It's going to depend on the market size. It's going to depend on what is the Medicare share of the market. Right. It's going to be different if you're talking about a, about entering a market where Medicare accounts for two thirds of the market opportunity. All of a sudden, the MFP is 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 you know, even more impactful there. There's just a few of the things that that I think generics and biosimilars are going to be to be looking at um, in in terms of whether to come to market. And, and I think there there's some some uh, uh, certainly some academics out there have highlighted the, the concern you raised, Dwayne, that, that a, a brand isn't necessarily going to stay in a market in, per, in perpetuity. Um, they're going to look for uh, new opportunities, for new innovation, for um, new ways to um, uh, realize a higher return on capital. Um, that's that's a natural and frankly a good thing that we ought to be ought to be encouraging. Um, a lot of the markets today that generics uh, are are serving have have been long abandoned by the brands. And so as we talk about shortages, I think there is a risk that over time, um, if if done poorly, you could drive greater shortages. I like what you said about uncertainty and timing considerations and challenges. Because I know when I think of, um, for example, small molecules, and you're looking at when that patent litigation is going to kick off and those decisions, that litigation, if it's a new chemical entity, is likely to kick off about four years after that product was approved. Whereas you're going to have to be making those decisions for the branded and the generic well before that drug is even on the negotiated list or you know what that negotiated pricing could be. Um, and I'm thinking about an example I'm looking at now where yeah, you, know, you have a litigation where there were 18 generic applicants. They're sort of trying to sort out right now what that generic entry date is going to be. Perhaps it'll be after 2026, but now you also have the IRA coming in potentially to cut that drug's Medicare price ahead of when those 18 generics might enter the market, right? And so I'm sure that they're thinking about what that cost means to them. 
Um, but, but, you know, thinking about, you know, the Hatch-Waxman litigation system and the BPCIA litigation system, which is what we've used now to bring forward generics and biosimilars to the market, how do you think this disrupts that, that current system such that there could be disincentives for those generics or biosimilar manufacturers? And is it different for generics versus biosimilars, given how the law has treated the timing for when price cuts could happen based on whether you're, you know, a small molecule generic, you know, or, you know, a large molecule um, drug. Yeah. So let me react to the second half of that first. I, I think what I would say is the details, the specific details are going to differ between, you know, the generic and biosimilar and, and you know, but the fundamental analysis is going to be um, very similar, uh, which is um, what is the incentive? what's what's the now all of a sudden you you have a much bigger range if you will in what your addressable market might look like um because now you 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 have to you know, today you account for what do we think the growth of that product over time is going to be what do we what brand competitors do we think will come in you know, these are some of the things you think about in, in, in that market. Now, all of a sudden, you have to throw in that additional wild card of if the drug gets a negotiated price, what what will that price be? And, and how will that address the return? And oh, by the way, how will commercial payers respond? Will com commercial payers try to adopt that price? And, and, and and how's all that going to play out? Um, so, so, so you're certainly changing the incentive. And so, if you're thinking about in under Hatch-Waxman, for instance, uh, if you're thinking about the incentive of 180 days exclusivity uh, for that rewards a generic for challenging a patent and entering earlier than expected. May maybe that incentive is still there, but 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 maybe it changes the the equation when it comes to whether to to take on the time and expense of a lengthy um, uh, uh, patent litigation. That oh by the way impacts not just that first filer, but all those guys who typically are not first filers but draft on. The, the entry of the first filing generic um, who does do that, that patent litigation. I think you have a similar dynamic in the biosimilar space. Um, to give you a sense of it, keep in mind the legislation says that small molecules are eligible for negotiation at year seven and biologics are eligible for negotiation at year 11. Uh, and then if they're chosen, the, the negotiated price goes into effect two years later. Okay, but there was in as we were working through this, I came across a study I'd forgotten about. Um, some academics were looking at the generic market, and they found that the most common time frame for a generic launch was somewhere between year twelve, years twelve and a half, and fourteen and a half. So it doesn't really align with that year seven. Um, uh, similarly, I mean, you know, for, for biologics, they're eligible at year 11 and, and it kicks in 
at year 13. But biosimilars face 12 years of brand biologic exclusivity. So, you know, I, I, I guess, and there are folks who know this stuff better than me, I guess there is, it is theoretically possible, perhaps, to go through and check all those boxes and get approval and get the IP resolved and get to market. But um, I can I can say that so far in the biosimilar space, no one has done it. Uh, certainly not in that time frame. So um, it, it is it is certainly a challenge that, that folks are going to face and that 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 will affect uh, um, you know, future investments. Yeah, and I, I think to that point too, you know, some of it is, well, because we have patents that we're protecting longer than this seven year, nine year, 11 or 13. And so um, I'm certain it could be a conversation for a whole nother podcast about whether this is a direct assault or indirect assault on our patent system. But, um, you know, but I, I do think that those are, are, are some of the issues to be worked through and, you know, that for generics to consider and brands and whether it's worth the time, as you said, to really do that expensive patent litigation if you're going to be subject to negotiated prices and if you're a generic entering in the market what that's going to look like for your market once you enter if the brand drug does have price negotiation um, but going back to also when we were talking about the timing for generic or biosimilar you know launch and affecting the ability to be negotiated the ira does allow biosimilar manufacturers to request a negotiation delay for potentially eligible biologics if there's a high likelihood of biosimilar market entry and you know we've seen some of the guidance now come out from cms about what this high likelihood could be so in your view, you know, how is this policy developed? How do you think it's going to play out? And do you think that these policymakers and regulators got it right? Or perhaps is the bar too high for biosimilar manufacturers? Um, because I know when I think of this, sometimes I wonder for if you're at least you're on, you know, the branded side, is there incentive to just stand back and let the biosimilar come on the market so you don't get negotiated? But you know, the biosimilar is the one that holds the hand to really request that, you know, biosimilar exemption. So they'd have to show a high likelihood. So I think this is going to be a very important provision, you know, in the IRA that we, you know, see play out and we'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah, it's a great question. I think that, um, I, th I think the best answer is in terms of the, the core question is the bar too high. I think it remains to be seen. I think this is like some of these other things that we're going to have to see how it plays out. And and we those biosimilar those two year delay requests are confidential between the biosimilar developers and CMS. Um, the the deadline for the first set of delay requests uh, was earlier this summer. I believe it was in June. Um, so, so I don't know if there were any delay requests, uh, put in or how those are going. I do think that, um, there is, there are aspects of the standard that are, um, valuable and, and appreciate the work that CMS has done on it. There are areas that, um, we think can be further improved. Um, we think, for instance, that CMS 
um, that, that Congress intended to give the um, benefit of the doubt to biosimilar uh, developers here, and that Congress gave a backstop um, to CMS uh, in case it gets it wrong, right? So, so CMS understandably is is concerned about um, uh, that determination of high likelihood. Uh, but keep in mind the legislation um, provides that if CMS grants a two-year delay request and the biosimilar, for whatever reason, is not able to launch during that time, that the brand is then on the hook for a rebate equivalent to what they would have paid uh, had a negotiated price gone into effect. And so, so we think that was intended by Congress to create a back-end protection um, for CMS for what is understandably a really difficult decision of you know, how on earth do you determine high likelihood of biosimilar launch. Um, I, I think uh, CMS is, is having to figure out what that means on the IP side. Right, how to assess the patent landscape and whether a biosimilar is likely to launch, uh, for instance. And I, and I think that is going to be a work in progress. Um, so so I, I, think, I think it's just one that we're going to have to continue to work with the agency on. And it's interesting because when we think about that guidance, it's not the guidance for the program moving forward in perpetuity. It is the guidance for applicable year 2026. And so I think that sets up a, an opportunity for uh, learning as we go. And we could see CMS continue to think, rethink how it's going to apply this. And we'll learn more once they actually uh, actually do this moving forward. And so, at, to no surprise, we started with the negotiation piece of the IRA that gets most of the attention, but it's also worth thinking about how some of the other pieces of the IRA play a role for generics and, and the biosimilars industry, but the drug industry as a whole. And one of those is the Part D redesign. I don't think it gets enough attention when we think about the IRA. But I uh, wanted to get your thoughts here because it truly does, that, that piece of the law, the Part D redesign, does change the uh, financial responsibility of the players involved, whether it's the government, uh, the Part D plans, manufacturers. Uh, can you give us a sense from where you sit uh, the importance of the redesign and how that could play out for generic and biosimilar manufacturers? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are two key pieces of the Part D redesign that I would highlight. The $2,000 out-of-pocket cap uh, for patients and the requirement that that, that be applied um, in a, in, through a smoothing fashion where, where it, it's applied over 12 months and, and not necessarily $2,000 upfront. Um, but also then, Dwayne, to your point, the the legislation increases the liability of Part D plans. So it increases how much Part D plans are on the hook for uh, in the administration of the, of the program. Now, I think the goal of that is to make those plans more um, cost sensitive 
and to uh, make them to create greater incentives for them to use lower cost products uh, as they manage the benefit. Um, and, and, and I would say that the legislation goes a significant way, but probably didn't complete the job. So for instance, um, uh, I mentioned that we've seen a significant trend over the last six, seven years of plans being, Part D plans being slow to cover new generics. Um, we believe that an aspect of that will be reduced by this legislation. Um, but what the legislation did not touch um, was the power of the uh, of the rebate to the PBM. So, so the legislation may have changed some of the incentives um, for the plans, but not necessarily in the incentives for the for the PBMs who are who are managing the drug benefit for those plans. So, so it's a it's an important step, um, but we we do think there's more that needs to be done to address some of those dynamics. And I think Congress has picked up on that a bit. Uh, the focus this year seems to be a lot on the role of PBMs in the drug supply chain. And so we'll see what, if any kind of steps this Congress will take in addressing some of the, the concerns you raised. And so when we think about the Part D redesign, uh, there's an opportunity for plans and even an incentive for plans to shift some of their formulators to favor some products with lower list prices may be one per, one incentive for industry. What other incentives are there in the law that, that we can we can share today? One that comes to mind is this provision about the ASP plus 8%. And so when we think about current law, it's ASP plus six, regardless of whether it's the reference biologic or the biosimilar. And there's been some concern that because the biologic has the higher price and it's the ASP plus a percentage of that, there's an incentive to still use that higher price product. Do you think that this attempt to provide an added payment for use of the biosimilar will help? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, I think the common thread you're that, that you're seeing as we work through these is is you have a set of incentives that have grown up over time um, and and maybe enshrined in law or or regulation, um, but but were not intended as such. But but the end result is that they encourage um, whether it's plans, PBMs, or in this case. Uh, they can encourage providers to use a product that is a higher cost product um, instead of a generic or a biosimilar. The, the ASP plus eight provision is an important provision. What it does is it says that for the next five years, um, uh, the add-on payment for the, the, the reimbursement that a provider receives when they use a biosimilar uh, will be higher uh, it'll be 8% of the brand ASP um, th than, than the reimbursement they receive when they use a the brand biologic. 
that's an important step. And, and I think part of, part of the importance of it is simply that it um, now for the first time you have Congress and CMS saying, look, we, we want to align the incentives to encourage the use of the lower cost product, even if that means we're paying more for the lower cost product than, than we might otherwise. Um, and, and that's an important step. Is there more that they can do? We, we absolutely believe that there is. And, and we think that there's work that CMS could do under their own authority or under a demonstration uh, uh, project. And, and CMS is a lot of work uh, going on in this space, but we have seen examples if we look at the oncology care model, for instance, where um, if you make providers sensitive to the cost of the products, you can um, you can encourage use of those lower cost biosimilars. And so, with all of that in mind, uh, let's think about kind of the the next step uh, for the AAM not just as it relates to the IRA, but some of the other issues we've talked about. You had mentioned drug shortages and the challenges there. What are some of the policy solutions you all support as it relates to drug shortages? What are some of the policy solutions that have been proposed that might be of concern? So I think what people would hear from us is the need to look at this market holistically. Um, right now, there's a lot of interest in drug shortages, and rightly so. Um, but it's really important that we not settle for a couple Band-Aids here and there that don't address the root causes of those shortages. And the root causes of those shortages fundamentally are um, market and policy changes that have made generic competition more difficult and less rewarding. Um, that means that means looking at the incentives for coverage and adoption of new generics and new biosimilars. Um, that means looking at things like the Medicaid inflation penalty and um, uh, prices uh, of, of generics in the 340B program that make the continued production of, of low margin or even negative margin generics um, unsustainable. Um, it means also looking at the role of other players in the system. So uh, providers, um, uh, for instance, and, and creating incentives for providers to purchase in a to purchase generics in a way that is sustainable over the long run, um, because because the reality is, as I mentioned earlier, generics today are serving thousands of unprofitable markets where the the brand has long ago left that market, and so so it really is, in our view, important to address the. Um, the, the market as a whole um, as, as we think about the future of generic and biosimilar competition. So I, I think we'll hear a lot more about the issue of drug shortages for the rest of this Congress and you know, this year, next year, moving forward. 
And so I do want to turn to the IRA and get your sense of, okay, what are some of the next steps that Congress can take when, when if they're able to uh, think about some opportunities moving forward? Looking at the administration, there might be some opportunities to tweak some of the guidance uh, and other issues as well. What's your agenda as you look at some of the changes to the IRA? Yeah, thanks for that. I, I think obviously PBMs and drug shortages are high on the topic. Um, last I checked, there are six or seven congressional committees working on PBMs, um, and we we are receiving a significant number of questions uh, on drug shortages. Um, so, so that's an issue that has very clearly captured people's attention um, and, and concern, and, and rightly so. I think as we think about the future of IRA, I think um, a lot of that work is really going to be uh, continued work with CMS on the uh, implementation of it. So for instance, how's the biosimilar two-year delay process working? Um, what, you, how, are, how are the different elements of this working both for for manufacturers as well as for CMS because because everyone's going to learn as they work through this process and so so I'd say that's where I expect a lot of the attention to be on IRA uh, over at least the the immediate future. I think if I had to sum up maybe one of the key themes of our discussion today, it would be uncertainty and unknowns. And now adding into the mix of all of that. We've seen various stakeholders, including some branded pharmaceuticals, challenging the IRA law itself. And so just wondering if you have any thoughts on that or, you know, how that could be adding to the uncertainty and the unknowns over the next year or so. Yeah. So disclaimer, I'm, I'm, I'm not an attorney. Um, so I, I, like everyone else, I'm kind of um, watching with interest to see what happens with that, that litigation. Um, uh, yeah, I guess sit back with some popcorn and see see how that goes. I, I think it, it is simply one more unknown, and and that that to me is uh, at the end of the day, we have we have things we know, we have things we don't know, and and then we have a whole list of things that we don't know that we don't know uh, around this legislation and how it's going to go. Yeah, it should be an interesting year, couple years to say the least. Um, but with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. We are extremely grateful to Craig Burton for joining us today. I think it was a really informative discussion about public policy and things that we will be talking about likely for years to come. And we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join us as well. As a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg intelligence research on the Bloomberg terminal at BIGO. Thanks again and have a great day.
I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.